So hello and welcome. Happy Friday. Today is Friday, August the 5th, and this is episode number 170 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. My name is Frederick Dunn, and this is The Way to Be. So I'm glad that you're here today. If you're driving, thanks for listening. This is available on Podbean. For those who don't know, it's called The Way to Be. It's a podcast. And the topics that we're going to discuss today were submitted during the past week, either posted on a YouTube as a question, or they went to my website, thewaytobe.org, and they went to the Way to Be page and filled out a form and submitted that. You can give as little or as much information as you want to be considered for a topic for the following Friday. So I'm glad that you're here. Super hot outside. If you want to know what we're going to talk about today in this episode, please look down in the video description and all the timestamps and uh, topics will be there in order with related links because there are some videos today that you could go to for further information for those who are interested. So thanks a lot. Let's get started. First, how hot is it outside? It's hot everywhere. So it's kind of embarrassing for me to say 85 degrees Fahrenheit is hot here in Pennsylvania. Super humid, 29.4 Celsius for those who want to know that. And we've had some recent rain. Humidity was really high. Had a really fun visit yesterday. Kids were on a field trip and they came out here and visited, learned about some honeybees, habitat, habitat diversity, and everything else. It was a lot of fun. Teenagers, we had a good time. So thank you for those of you who helped me with that. And for those uh, who are here that subscribed, you said you would. If you're watching now, thanks. I hope you got something out of it. Leave a comment. Let people know who you are and what you, uh, what you might have learned. So we'll get started here with question number one from Lisa. And from Newport News, Virginia. There's a naval shipyard down there. Newport News Naval Shipyard. Anyway, I opened the middle opening of my Layens Hive to vent, given it has been so hot here in eastern Virginia. I've checked the last couple of frames twice now, and still, brood, no frames of just honey, is the queen laying further down across because of the increased airflow. This is the second year, um, second year hive that I've collected no honey yet. Now the more important question, will you be offering the cup or mug style you have in episode number 169? So let's get started first with a couple of frames twice now and still brood, but I think she might have meant to say still no brood. And uh, when you change the venting, you can move the brood down along if it's a horizontal hive. If you have an entrance over here, the brood tends to be concentrated near the entrance because that's where they get the best ventilation. And if we open other vents along the bottom or even near the top this time of year, you can expect also to find some brood up near those entrances because that's where the air movement is when it's really hot. So yes, that could be the impact uh, of that. So it does increase airflow. Bees, by the way, keep in mind, we're thinking in terms of human conditions. We go outside, it's 85 degrees, boy, is that hot. But the bees indicate whether or not they're stressed or need to move a lot of air. Sit right in front of the beehive and listen to the airflow out there. The sequences that we started today's video with were shot this morning. And uh, a lot of the bees at the very end there were venting their hives already and lining up and moving the air. And uh, got stung on the ear. So this ear sticks out a little farther than this ear right now because I get overly confident and sat right there at the video of the bees. 
But uh, so you can listen and see how stressed they are. And the reason I bring it up is, what's the temperature of brood? 94.7 degrees Fahrenheit or 94 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit, anywhere in between. So when it's only in the 80s, and of course the temperature inside the hive can get really high, but the reason that they're fanning is not often to cool the hive. That's what we think they're doing. But the, what they really might be doing is drying down their honey. And so high humidity, it means the higher the humidity, the more work there is to dry out the honey. And uh, so there's more fanning going on. So they fan for two reasons. It doesn't mean that they're hot. Just food for thought there. They may not be completely overheated. Some of you are in excess of 100 degrees Fahrenheit. I highly recommend some kind of shade for your bees. Those sails that people rig that are air passes through them so there's air movement and stuff. We don't want to lock in the air so we want some air movement for your hives and so desert southwest places like that a lot of people are super heated and there's fires even in some places so if you're there our thoughts are with you and we wish you all the best with your bees. Keep the water available. Bees that have access to water can keep up with extraordinary environmental changes. So Will you be offering the coffee mug? This is the one we're talking about. This was my thumbnail for last week's video. And I think we're gonna modify this. This is a coffee cup, kind of more than a mug. And people have said that, although some like this, let me give you a close up here of how it's made. No two are alike, obviously, because this is done by a potter locally. And um, what's your favorite configuration for a cup? like mugs that are tall and cylindrical or open cups like this so i'd like to get some feedback i was looking that up they're not for sale uh, maybe later if uh, she makes a bunch of them and uh, everybody seems to like the style they could be made available for sale they do have a medallion on there that says the way to be so it's kind of crude but at the same time kind of cool because it's really three-dimensional but if you're interested in letting me know what shape or size or capacity of cup you prefer, or if you see someone else who makes a comment that has a shape or capacity that you like, click a like on that one, and then we can get some feel for what the best design would be if people were interested in buying something like that. So, what else? Yeah, changing venting, the organization of your venting can change the distribution of the brood inside your hive. It sure can. So question number two, moving on. This is from Alan, Chatsworth, Georgia. I installed a package two weeks ago. For those of you who don't know, it's a package of bees that generally comes in the mail in a bee bus, which are the plastic ones, or they come in the wooden shipping containers that have screens on two sides, and they come with their own syrup, and then there's a queen with them. And then you install that, two or three pounds, generally speaking. So we installed this package two weeks ago in an eight-frame deep. I was given four drawn frames and a frame of capped honey with bees, or with the bees. I added one better comb, so for those of you who don't know, better comb is pre-drawn synthetic bees and wax, so all the cells are already there for immediate use for the bees. And two undrawn foundation, I fed them one-to-one -one sugar syrup, one gallon in two weeks. At nine days, I did an OAV. So OAV is oxalic acid vaporization is the method that it gets delivered, and that's for varroa control. So at two weeks, I open the hive to check the queen and the progress of the hive. No eggs, no larvae, no capped brood, a little pollen, nectar in every cell on every frame. So question, 
Should I replace the queen? And if so, should I remove a few days ahead of the new queen's arrival? And should I remove some of the nectar frames or add another deep? Okay, so when we have a tiny package of bees being installed, I would not recommend adding another deep. That's too much space for them right off the bat. So smaller spaces with a couple of pounds of bees, uh, they work it better. They control the environment better and they work the resources and available space in that hive better than they would if we had two deeps, for example. So keep it at one. And we are pretty far along not to be seeing eggs. And the reason I say that is because when you get a package of bees, the queen that comes with them should be a fertile mated laying queen. So in other words, she should, as soon as she can find resources in the hive, cells to put eggs in, and as soon as the bees are bringing in provisions like pollen and nectar, then that queen should be able to start putting eggs in the cells and you should see them. Now a lot of brand new beekeepers don't see the eggs very well, so they can look like the cells are empty. So if you wait at least a week to start looking for things, but here we're past nine days and nothing spotted, I would be a little bit concerned. So we look at the weather conditions that your queen shipped through. So if it's a package, do they come in the mail? That's not clear here. Most people mail packages. So when they do that, uh, your queen can be exposed to pretty high temperatures this time of year, especially given the weather conditions that we'd had, and it can impact that queen's fertility. You also may not have a well-mated queen. So for me personally, given the time of year that it is, because we're already into August, and we don't have a lot of time for them to build up the resources for winter. So I would think that I would order in a mated queen, get a replacement. I would also contact the person that sent me the package that you received and find out if maybe other queens shipped at the same time under those same conditions and to your area are having similar difficulty because the heat may be the culprit or poor mating before they ever ship them. But I definitely would be going after a, a mated laying queen right now because we're kind of out of time. And uh, should I remove nectar frames or add another deep? So don't add another deep, but yes, I would definitely make space. So we want comb that the new queen, when she shows up, can be put in now and can start laying eggs right away without a bunch of work being done by the bees. And yes, pull out the existing queen. And if you can... I don't know if you have a nucleus hive or something like that, but if you could pull one of the frames that has nectar in it, and since you have better comb handy, if you could put a frame of better comb and that frame of nectar with some bees and put her in a nucleus hive before that new queen arrives, you kind of have an insurance policy because you might be surprised to find out that the reason the queen was not laying yet is because there could actually be a dearth in your area. And if there's a dearth in your area, the bees that are with her would not necessarily be promoting the production of eggs unless a lot of resources were coming in from outside the hive. So if you put her in a nucleus box, then we've saved her, we haven't destroyed the queen. And if you bought in a new one and she did the exact same thing until resources pick up in the environment, then all of a sudden you find out that she's laying, now you've got two colonies. So that's another thing to consider, aside from the fact that that queen may have uh, been exposed to extreme conditions in transit. So save the queen, put her in a nucleus, just a two frame. If you have a five frame nucleus, put those two frames that I described and then the rest can be just foundation if you want. 
and keep her off to the side and that should keep her alive and that's why you move bees with her she's going to have to be attended to but that small space will keep that queen and if something happens to the queen that's inbound she could die in shipment or get late or get cooked so we don't know what's going on but create an insurance policy i think Hope I wasn't all over the chart on that answer. Question number three, Noah. Do you think that the mineral and vitamin content of products like Honey Bee Healthy and including the product, that product are enough to counter malnutrition caused when the dirts are long enough to feed sugar water for longer than the beekeeper likes? Given the drought conditions all over the U.S., I'm forced to think about this more recently. So, uh, bees responding to the environmental conditions uh, definitely can put them... When there's an extended dearth, they can stop laying, they can stop producing, you can end up with a big brood break. And so, that's why the previous question may tie into this also. And then people naturally, you're a beekeeper, you want to help your bees, you want to give them a boost, you want to keep them going and things like that during a period of dearth. Um, if you did not pull off spring resources that they stored, if they still have honey in there, you're probably in good shape. If you do not have honey on the hive, then you probably are feeding sugar syrup. But the question is about honey be healthy and does that boost them nutritionally? And uh, they make claims if you use honey be healthy as described on the label. So just so we know what we're talking about, this is honey be healthy. This is the original. It says it's a feeding stimulant with essential oils. And then it can boost brood numbers. Now, because you're mixing this with sugar syrup, even sugar syrup alone would boost brood numbers. So if you're using it as the label describes and you put this in your sugar syrup, you are boosting brood. Now, did that come from Honey Bee Healthy? Or did that come from primarily the sugar syrup because of the carbohydrate, which gives them the energy that they need? As far as vitamins and nutrition, I don't think there's any supporting science right now that says that Honey Bee Healthy has those things in it that will boost uh, the microbiome of the bee or that uh, it would replace, for example, the proteins that you're getting from pollen because that's where the deficiency comes in in reproduction. So, because who else gets fed a derivative from the pollen that's brought in? So if you have no pollen coming in, that means also the queen potentially is not being fed as well as she otherwise would. And this also impacts egg production and brood production and right on down the line because they have to feed the brood once those eggs hatch on the third day. Then we have open larvae that require feeding right away. And in some cases, they stop uh, feeding the drone larvae, for example. So we had people over here and we're looking in the observation hives and one of the things I wanted to show them is that just prior to this current bloom situation which started within the last few days uh, the workers the nurse bees in the brood area in the frame there on the frames uh, they were not feeding the drone larvae so the drone larvae were really drying up we know that they're drones because the cells are larger and uh, we don't they don't put worker eggs in drone cells and then of course the workers on the other side of the same frame same brood uh the worker size cells had larvae in those and they're just swimming in nutrition so the bees are opting to starve the drones that are in development and feed the workers because that's the future of the hive so 
there can be a dearth and it could cause egg laying to cut back and so people are looking for stuff. If you're really desperate, this is something I don't personally do, but you could put on pollen patties. Uh, because now that's nutrition that would keep your nurse bees fortified so they can continue doing their work. The best thing that could happen, of course, is that you just have resources still in the hive enough to get them by. This is for backyard beekeeping. And uh, the reason I make that distinction is because we don't have any production commitments. We don't have to meet pollination anywhere. You're just a backyard beekeeper. We want to keep our bees alive and surviving through the dirt. So we know they need water. We know they need minerals. And so we can open feed and provide resources like that. So you should have a water source nearby. And uh, rather than honeybee healthy, for example, uh, sugar syrup, if they're completely dry and they're running out of stored honey, then sugar syrup can help fortify them for that. But uh, a while ago, I did a study of salts, a practical test that anybody can do. And I'm going to link the video and show you what I did and how I did it. Um, which show that we put sea salts here. Morton natural sea salt was the number one thing that the bees chose. The very tight second was Himalayan pink crystal salt, which some people call sea salt, but it's not. It's just Himalayan crystal salts. But the thing is, it has a bunch of mineral content so that the bees can choose to use it if they want. And that's also why some people see this. It doesn't matter which one you get, sea salts work. But uh, they want to put it inside the hive. Please don't do that. The other thing is they want to mix everything together. So sugar syrup and then honeybee healthy and then sea salts added to that or Himalayan pink salts to that. And then they get this, you know, what they think is this big cocktail of really good things for the bees. I would like to direct you away from that. Have you provide fresh water resources for your bees, of course. And then separate from that, other open surface drinkers that have one teaspoon of sea salts or Himalayan pink salts per quart of water out and then you'll find out where the bees go and what they want to use because the ones that are after the salts and minerals are not necessarily the ones that are after clean water that they might be just using to evaporate or to cool down the hive. And the sea salts, some people have made claims that sea salts are used uh, to help cure honey. I can't find any supporting studies for that. So if you know about how salts and minerals in water are being used by the bees to cure honey or dry the honey, uh, please link that or post a, a statement about that so I can do the follow-up research. I've done as much uh, as I can to try to find some study on that, and I can't find why or how honeybees would use sea salts uh, to help dry or cure their honey. So I can't find it. But if you're putting stuff out, honeybee healthy is a great extender for your syrup so that it doesn't ferment, for example, and it doesn't get that mold in it. And uh, it can also cause a scent in your hive that uh, the bees can find favorable. It's sold as an appetite stimulant, but we did other tests on that as well. And if you had one-to-one -one sugar syrup with nothing in it and one-to-one -one sugar syrup with honeybee healthy in it, they went for the sugar syrup that had nothing in it first. So it didn't work as an appetite stimulant for me either. So if you want to put something out mineral-wise to help boost the bees, uh, we know that the sea salts and stuff, salts and minerals, definitely work. The bees go after that. 
So, and letting them choose. They'll let you know what they need. They're very good at tasting and testing and finding out what they need and then bringing that back to the hive. And then the receiver bees inside the hive let them know whether that's good or bad, whether they want it or they don't. And if they want it, more go to that exact same location and you'll see the numbers build up at that resource. So it's a lot of fun, but uh, mineral and vitamin content of products like Honeybee Healthy. So we did Pro Health, Honeybee Healthy, Beekeeper's Choice. These are all appetite stimulants and the bees overwhelmingly went for sugar syrup with none of those things in them. And so as I said before, please don't put salt in that, offer that separate. If you wanted to do a test, you could do sugar syrup one-to-one, -one, and you could put that out there with Honeybee Healthy, and then you could have sugar syrup one-to-one -one with nothing in it, and sugar syrup one-to-one -one with Honeybee Healthy and a teaspoon of sea salt. Offer all three, see what the bees go for. Might have something there, and there might be some synergy in adding that. So next we move to question number four, Christina. Hunting Lady, that's the YouTube channel. I've heard you say it several times. Bee Weaver, bees bite the feet off the varroa mites, or the bees will bite through that. I've only seen their nectar slurping tongue as their mouth parts. Can you explain this to me? And Christina's not the only one that asked me this question. Someone was kind of annoyed that I mentioned that bees can bite, that bees can chew, that they can scrape wood, and things like that. Honeybees have mandibles. They are kind of shaped like little ice cream scoops and they come together. They can bite. They can bite other bees. If you want to see how they use their mandibles, usually they're open. When there's a guard bee on the landing board, their forelimbs are up, their mandibles are open. And when there's a bee landing or an insect like a bumblebee or something like that that they don't want in their hive, they go after it and they bite it. So they can bite. They have mandibles. They can chew. That's how they process and place and work wax beeswax gets chewed and shaped and you'll see their little heads bobbling they're working it with their mandibles so yeah bees have mandibles they can bite they can scrape if we look at uh, deck washing washboarding whatever term you want to assign to it when they're going back and forth they're using their mandibles again and they're scraping away on the surface of it and they're moving their forelimbs really fast so yeah they have more than tongues they can bite they can even bite you so uh, that's about it. They have mandibles. They do a lot with it. So, and there's bee anatomy. You can look it up or Google honeybee mandibles and look at the images. I'm sure there will be some great super close-ups that show you exactly how they're shaped, where they're placed. And then after you know they're there, you'll notice them all the time on the bees. So the next question comes from Beginner, B-E-E-G-I-N-N-E-R. That's the YouTube channel name. We're planning to have a carpenter friend build a long Langstroth hive using your plans and would like to know if you would explain your thoughts on ventilation and best location for the entrance in this type of hive. Is there anything you would change in the future design? Okay, so for those of you who don't know, uh, we have free plans for the horizontal long Langstroth hive. Now, the person that I consider to be the authority on all things horizontal when it comes to hive configurations and how they use them would be Dr. Leo Sharashkin and his uh, YouTube channel. Not He doesn't have a YouTube channel, but his website is horizontalhive.com. 
So you can go there, there's a lot of information on that. Uh, when it comes to my hive configurations, I do depart a little bit from Dr. Leo. And so the Long Langstroth hive in particular, and we're gonna do, once the bees uh, start to be fortified again and we need to split hives, I have to split the Layens hive, that's coming up. Uh, and we're going to inspect the horizontal Long Langstroth hive. And the reason is uh, I'm gonna show how they distribute the resources in there, and it's because I use a single entrance. A lot of the hives, including the second one I just bought from Dr. Leo through his website, I bought his 20 frame Layens hive. And the most, you know, the best one that he sells. So it's insulated, has all the Layens frames, and uh, there are three entrances on it. So there are different times of year when you might open those entrances, but I only open one and I open the one that's to the northeast corner of the southeast corner, I'm sorry, of the hive. And because the broad surface of that hive faces south, and that's for winter warming, and I found that bees with entrances that face south or southeast, or south by southeast, do better than those with entrances that are facing north, for example. And so I'm gonna go over this when I do the inspection, but you'll notice that if you only have a single ventilation source, which is the entrance, uh, you'll find out that they concentrate their brood there. I mentioned this earlier already today, but they concentrate the brood there and then you'll see resources like pollen stored, you'll see some honey capped, and then eventually what you'll see is a transition to nothing but honey. So as you go like the last eight or nine frames of my Long Langstroth hive, uh, they're nothing but honey. There's no brood in there, there's no drones in there. Because of the ventilation being at the other end of the hive, as they work their way through, it's nothing but honey, and I don't use a queen excluder. And it's because I'm not venting in another location, I'm not opening any other entrances down the line, which some people do, uh, when you do that, the brood will follow those other entrances. So then you won't have uh, exclusively honey in some areas. And this is fortified uh, when we look at videos by some of my favorite YouTubers like Dirt Rooster and Jeff Horchaw and Mr. Ed. When we look at their ripouts, these are valuable to me um, because I want to see, number one, how do the bees distribute their resources inside these unattended spaces? Floor joists, wall studs, wherever they were put. Some of these places have no insulation and this is in the south, it's super hot, super humid. And we have these large bee colonies in walls and in floors and in soffit areas. And they have the tiniest opening and it's a single entrance. So this is where I get reinforcement about that because I'm further north actually. So for me, a single entrance compared to what's going on down south, the bees can handle what's going on up here much easier than they can cope with the environment and the humidity and everything that's going on down in the southern parts of the United States. So it gets reinforced over and over because those are the things I always wanna know when they're doing one of these big ripouts and they find that they've got a space where the hive continues for 10 or 11 feet. We don't even have a hive that's like that. So the space the colony of the bees are occupying is uninterrupted, especially in floor joists. So we find out then that the bees can organize themselves inside that space, that they can move the air into the parts of that cavity that they need it to be moved to. 
and they get it through these tiny entrances, often where clapboards or some type of exterior siding just comes together and there was a breach, which is how the bees chose it and probably occupied the space in the first place. And then they just started to build, and as they went, they stored honey all the way up in the end. So you can clearly see, if you watch their videos, you can clearly see that the bees, there's no queen excluder in there, and there is yet an area that is nothing but honey. So you can replicate that in a horizontal hive. It's also what I do in my vertical hives, the standard Langstroth hives also. Single entrance. The brood gets concentrated from that entrance area, and then it builds up maybe into the second box. But everything above that second box, if there's no top vent, if there's no upper entrance, and the only entrance to the hive is at the landing board, and again, my preferred orientation for that is east by southeast, and then you'll find out that you don't need a queen excluder because there's no incentive for them to have brood up there where they can't ventilate the brood very well. So it's very interesting that the bees consistently follow these patterns and it's what they do in bee trees. It's what they do whenever they have a cavity that isn't modified by people. So obviously we're keeping them in beehives. There's nothing more modified by people than a beehive. But, uh, you know, in the past, I used to have the upper entrance. And I thought, yeah, that's great. They're going to go straight to the honey super. And they're going to, the field bees, the foragers, they'll be storing their honey faster. And we can have a queen excluder down below. And then I did my practical tests on queen excluders and saw that many of these workers inside the hive can't even get through it. So, no more top vent, no upper entrance, plenty of honey production. So, that's what I do. And one of the things that I did change, so would I change anything on my plans? I would change nothing on those plans as they stand. So if you go to that uh, page on my website, the link will be down in the video description. Everything is free, all the plans are free. You uh, will see my standard Langstroth configuration and then the long line configuration. And you can build them, do anything you want, make your own mods, just have fun with it. Uh, but for now, I would change nothing. They're working great. Question number six. This comes from Dustin from San Antonio, Texas. This isn't a normal type question I've seen you respond to, but I've watched hundreds of videos from multiple YouTubers, as well as taking some beekeeping classes. And I know there is some discussion around replacing queens annually or letting nature take its course. However, what I haven't seen anywhere is a methodology of when you should change your queen if you're gonna do it annually. Our flow is generally from April until June and I did not believe there are enough drones present prior to that flow for a good mating flight. We have a second flow from September through October and if I replace my queen with a virgin queen at the end of June, is this enough time for her to ramp up before the second flow? Okay, so I'm not in the, remember, I'm not a commercial beekeeper. I don't need to go into winter with fresh queens every year. I know some commercial beekeepers do exactly that. And, but they also have big queen breeding programs, mostly. If you're a commercial beekeeper, you want to be breeding your own queens and, of course, grafting and everything else. I don't do any of that because I end up with too many queens, not enough hives. I only have 27 colonies, so I'm very small scale. Uh, the other thing is the things I breed for. 
part of what I'm breeding for here. Uh, not a breeder to keep in mind, but these are the colonies I want to work with. I observe the colony through a period of two years. So as they're progressing and I document and keep records, please keep records of everything your bees do, including when you start to see drones in spring, because that is when we start to realize that we could do splits and we would get a good mating for the queens. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But I like to keep my queens for two years. Now, if I've had the queen for two years, I've also started doing something else, which I mentioned earlier today. Uh, nucleus hive. Get nucleus hives and have them handy. Those become resource hives. It's a parking spot for a queen that you're thinking about getting rid of, which actually might not be bad at all. Uh, you end up holding resources while your main hives get fortified, or they could even, for example, uh, you could have queens emerging from queen cells that never complete mating flights, that don't come back. Roughly 80% of those queens will come back mated, which means now we've got 20% that don't. They don't successfully mate or something eats them on their flight. Now you've got a colony without a queen and it's too late to make a new one because the eggs are gone and the resources that you need to do that are also no longer in that. Another vote for keeping a nucleus colony handy that has the old queen in it. Um, so that's what I do. I keep them for two years and then I like to do the queen change out uh, in the spring. So the month of May for me. And uh, one of the ways that we know when your bees are really going to kick in strong here in the northeastern United States is when we see fields of dandelions blooming. That's the kind of the indicator that we get out here that we're going to get a strong nectar flow. It's at the point of a strong nectar flow, which if you've got a good colony of bees that are acclimated to your region, they will already be building brood. And that's when their numbers start to also rapidly increase. And then you're going to find out that's when they start crowding the colony and they start looking for a replacement queen themselves. And that's called a swarm. So they create the swarm cells and all of that. So you can stay ahead of that by supering your hives early. And that's also your, your warning sign. When you see those dandelions blooming all over the fields, that's the time to have your supers going on the hives to make sure they don't get congested and then swarm out and you lose your bees again. But the reason I like splitting then is because what drones are out there that are going to mate with your replacement queens in the month of May? They're going to be coming from colonies that are in your area that have survived winter. Because the people that get their packaged bees and stuff like that and the shipments that come up from the south, uh, they're not producing drones yet. They're not in rapid production mode yet. So we've still got this hardy stock that's local to you that will be generating those drones. So when I see drones all over landing boards, it's time to go. And so for me, the first couple of weeks, the second week of May was the strongest for me. So this has to do with environmental cues and of course the buildup and the weight gain of each individual hive that you have. Great time to make splits, remove that queen, leave them with a frame of eggs. I do walk away splits almost exclusively. So when I'm looking at the hives then and I see I've got five frames of brood, six frames of brood. Uh, I'm going to pull the one that's got the queen on it and I'm going to put her in a nucleus hive and I'm going to leave them with eggs and resources so that they can make their own. If they don't already have queen cells in production, this is how I force them to do that. Because once I leave them with eggs and I pull their queen out, they notice almost right away the queen is missing and they'll already start selecting and feeding 
those eggs when they hatch into larvae, they'll be feeding them heavily and they'll build uh, emergency queen cells around them. So if they don't have them already, if they don't already have the swarm cells, which are around the periphery, they will pick eggs that once they hatch out and uh, they get that pheromone stimulus from that new larvae and they'll start feeding them and they'll create their replacement queens and I'll let them do it. So that has been very successful for me, too successful. To put that into perspective, I only want 10 colonies of bees. I have 27. Uh, and I hold these others in reserve. If they fail to replace the queen, then I can bring her back, reinstall her. She goes right back into light. And I bring, of course, the frames of brood with her. So there are a lot of things you can do, but the time of year, optimum time for that, for me here, is May. Ta-da! And I've also had uh, the nucleus hives, and when I say nucleus, I'm talking about five frames, deep frames, in wooden boxes. That's what I use. Single entrances, and I like the round entrances, not the flat entrances with entrance reducers put in. Uh, just because they've seemed to work really well and I cut the entrance off by half. So you have the hole there and you've got the wheel that covers it. I've only had them open halfway. I'm trying to hold them back and it doesn't work. I have nucleus colonies right now that are three stacks. So they have 15 deep frames. And uh, they just become a, a resource for any hive that's lagging behind that you want to boost them with nurse bees. You want to boost them with some resource or you want to use them to make comb, drawn comb that you later put in storage when you're packing down for winter time. So going into winter, those nucleus hives will be 10 frames. So they'll be five over five with an insulated top that shrouds over them. That's all they needed to get through winter. Here, where we have a heavy winter. So resource hives, making your queens in the month of May where I live. And in the fall, when I, you know, if you make a mistake, heaven forbid, one of us makes a mistake, we don't keep up with one of our hives and they generate this huge swarm late August, early September. And people say, don't even bother, don't waste your time. Okay, well, I have equipment sitting around. I have a swarm in a tree that's doomed if I don't hive them because their chances of survival in the wild here that time of year are extremely poor. So just on a whim, I take them and I put them in a nucleus hive put that nucleus hive on a rack somewhere and let them go. So I might put a frame of honey in there or something, but otherwise I don't really do a lot to help them out. And they made it. So there, there you go. So question number seven comes from Jim Lisbon, Connecticut. Been beekeeping since 2009. Quick and easy question. Said, so do you think our bees realize we're trying to help them? Meds, hive checks, splitting, etc. Are we just a pain in the butt to them? I wrestle with this question often and would like to hear your thoughts. Okay, so these are my thoughts. Um, we're curious. I'm curious. That's why I keep bees. I want to know everything I can possibly know about bees, and to do that, I have to look at them. So, do the bees want me? to open the hive and get in there and see what's going on. No, it's pretty, pretty convincing that honeybees are insects. The insects do not have a relationship with people. I know that some people are gonna get mad about that because their bees love them. I've heard the stories, um, but here's the thing. They're insects, they're trying to survive. What they're doing as soon as spring hits is they're creating resources so they can survive through winter. 
They also want to reproduce. They want to generate a swarm. They want to make other colonies of bees because that's why we have so many bees to begin with. If they weren't prolific and they didn't generate a bunch of colonies of bees, we wouldn't have a bunch of bees. So no, they don't welcome our intrusion. Anytime you're opening the hive, and that's why I always say have a plan, have a reason for getting into that hive. Uh, because the more, if you're one of these people that opens your hives all the time, you're gonna find out that the bees frequently get testy. Uh, we're interrupting their infrastructure. We're breaking the seals. Bees are trying to control the environment in their hive. Uh, this is one of the ways that I came up with not venting and not providing an upper entrance for the bees. When I put screens over the vents in the top of hives, and it was number eight screen, and when I put that on there and left it vented so that the bees would have that wonderful top venting that we think they need, uh, they propolized it. So when they sealed it up in my feeder shims, they were called, they had an integrated inner cover. They had a hole in the middle so that you could put a rapid round or some other emergency feed resource on for winter. And then beyond that, in the back, we had screens to give them the option to have ventilation. And then in the front, we had a wheel that controlled ventilation. So by letting air vent through, controlling it even a small amount, uh, the bees were sealing up and did completely seal the screens on the top. So bees tell us they don't want airflow through the top of their hives. And when we're going into a hive, what do we do? We take the outer cover off. We take the inner cover off, we pry it off, and the propolis is interrupted. And then we're pulling frames or we're pulling a box. And when we do that, we're also interrupting the propolis seal. So the propolis is bee glue, they call it. So it also has a healthful impact on the bees. The other thing is we're tearing apart drone cells. So when you pull up one box and usually between the frames, bottom of this box's frame, top of the lower box's frame, in between, they love to make drone cells. So one of two things happens. If there's a big nectar flow on, you could, when you pull them apart, that's where you get a bunch of honey dripping down into the hive. And later in the year, you risk kicking off robbing when you do that. Uh, or you'll see larvae laying there because you pulled it apart and they look nice, big, and fat. And some people will say, oh, it's a queen larvae and you killed her uh, because, but it's really a drone that has a really large one, unless you see a disrupted queen cell. So that's the other thing. Every time we get in there, if we don't have a plan, we're just curious, we just want to see, uh, the bees don't like it. We're disrupting infrastructure, we're invading the bee space. Uh, make your observations on the landing board. And if you really want to know, as I do, what's going on inside that hive? I want to see those eggs. I want to see the nurse bees feeding them and everything else. Observation hives, big ones. In fact, I'm going to have a bigger one made here by uh, horizontal bees. So my observation hive is that's where you really want to look at them. Now you can try to lessen the negative impact on the bees. And we talked about honeybee healthy earlier. If I mix up uh, sugar syrup one to one, so that's by weight, so a pound of uh, water and a pound of dry sugar, and then I put a little bit of honeybee healthy in there, and instead of smoke, especially during these really hot days, uh, hitting your bees with smoke sometimes seems counterintuitive. So you can get into your hives and you can spritz them with sugar syrup with honeybee healthy in it. And the reason I think the honeybee healthy helps is because what's the response of the bees to you getting in the hive? Do a bunch of guard bees go airborne and start 
flying around your veil, which they may do. Uh, or do they all kind of stay there? And if they're used to that smell, that honeybee healthy smell. So the way I let them know I'm coming is I spritz the landing board on that hive. And because there are other hives in close proximity, I walk around with the same honeybee healthy sugar syrup mix and I spritz every landing board with it. It gives them all something to do. And then I open the one that I'm going to look in. And when they come to the top, if I've inspected that hive before within the last couple of weeks, and I spritz them with honeybee healthy and sugar syrup on there, they show up at the top and their little tongues come out. They're ready to receive resources and they smell it. See, because the sugar syrup itself has almost no smell, I'm sure the bees with their fantastic olfactory capability can smell that sugar syrup on its own, but by adding a little honeybee healthy, I think it provides a little more of a distraction for them. It's also been proven. So if we talk about scientific things that it's been proven to help with, there have been studies done that show that introducing an unfamiliar queen into a colony with honeybee healthy can benefit the you know their receptiveness towards that new queen. So you can also like, but you're probably really hitting them with that. And in fact, I think it has the the formulas on it for how much honeybee healthy to use depending on what you're using it for. So it can be used in place of smoke. And I think the bees are less annoyed. I wouldn't say that they're super happy that we're there and that they welcome you and they just hope that you're going to come and open the hive. Uh, but it does lessen that stress for them because what do we do? We pacified them with sugar syrup and we gave them that smell of honeybee healthy, which has a strong scent of lemongrass oil and things like that. So you can even do your own. You don't have to buy that, for example. But it's a recognizable smell that you use each time you visit the hive which lessens their defensiveness because now they're reward-based and bees are smart. Biggest brained insects. They do have a positive or negative response. If they've had a bad response with you, if you don't smell right, if your hair is too big, if something else uh, triggers them and the defensive guard bees come out to get you when you show up, uh, they remember that. They can recognize you. So they know uh, when they have a bad experience or a good one. So, but they're not looking forward to you getting into the hive. So, have a plan, keep your visit limited, and uh, be as gentle as you can with them. Because it's the other thing that really makes the bees dislike your presence. Number one, you're already doing damage. There's no way you can do that without doing damage to the colony structure inside. Um, but if you start smashing bees, and that includes when you put your boxes back, you put those boxes on and you get the crunch of death that you hear between your your hive boxes, then that bee dies and that gets everyone excited. And part of the reason most of us are unaware of that is because you're closing up and you're walking away anyway, so they don't get a chance to fully come out and teach you the lesson they want to teach you. So slow and steady, respect the bees, get in and out as quick as possible. Question number eight, Gary, Sacramento, California. What are the signs, if any, on the outside of the hive that you're in a dearth? Supposedly, we're entering a midsummer dearth that will last until late August. I have noticed a reduction of activity on the landing board. I still see pollen coming in, although not at a rate they were uh, during spring and the beginning of summer. That's exactly it. Um, what do bees do in a dearth? They start consuming resources that they have and they're losing weight. So if you have a hive scale, you're going to know that right away. You can do the old school tilt method to see how heavy they are and if they're bringing on stores or not. The other thing is you'll start to see, and I use, again, observation hives. I know everyone doesn't have that, 
but it's easier for me to get a feel for what's going on in the apiary when I look at the observation hives themselves. Because now I can see there are a bunch of open nectar cells in there, and are they fanning it down? Right now they are, but a couple of weeks ago they weren't. In fact, most of those open cells were empty, and they even went as far as to uncap some of the cells that were previously capped honey inside the hive. So those are observations that we make, observation hive. But when the hive is losing weight, and exactly as described here by Gary, if you're looking at the landing board, uh, you'll see a reduction of activity. Uh, when those school kids were here yesterday and they're on their field trip, we showed them the observation hives. There was a large surplus of forager bees doing nothing. And that's because we're just at the leading edge of goldenrod. We've got sunflowers now. Uh, cosmos are blooming. And we're getting some rain too, which is also going to boost uh, the secondary nectar, which is going to be clover and stuff like that. That's kind of constantly there, but the more rain that kicks in. So we see a reduced activity. If all those foragers are just hanging out inside the hive or if it's super hot, they might be bearded on the front if they're trying to dry honey, but in a dearth, they're not drying honey. They're just ventilating the hive to keep it cool and keep the brood under control. 94 to 97 degrees Fahrenheit on the surface. So, and the pollen production is a great indicator too. And so I like to, I have grandkids and uh, they, they need jobs. So counting pollen going into a beehive is a good job. We teach them to give it an increment. So in one minute, give them a stopwatch and they have to count 10 or more pollen loads coming into that hive and then clock it with a time watch and tell me how many pollen loads they saw. But 10 or more indicates an increase in brood, which means they're responding to a positive resource in the environment. So it's exactly, I think you're already onto it here. You already know. Physical weight, are they in decline? Are they static? Or are they increasing? Right now, they're increasing. In a dearth previously, they were consuming their resources, losing weight. So... And less activity on the landing board. But notice the opening sequences from today's video, the landing board activity was pretty stellar. So they are really bringing in pollen and uh, we have to be ready to expand. And we're going to have a really good uh, nectar flow this year, I think. Question number nine comes from Joe, St. Petersburg, Florida. Your video of the bees grooming was amazing. Have you seen them clean the underside of the bee also? Also, I've spotted only one or two bees in the whole hive that have green-tinted thorax. Any thoughts? Well, first of all, the grooming. And if you didn't see it, it's last week's uh, Q&A. The opening sequences are bees grooming. And yes, they cover the whole bee from the tip of their toes through the whole length of all of their appendages. They do the underside, the thorax. They do everything. They really go after them. They groom every inch. I've not been able to get a video of those bees pulling a varroa mite off of the abdomen of another bee, but I've also not seen a varroa mite on the abdomen of the worker bees that would require removal. So that's why we don't see it. Now the real test would be, if I wanted to do it, and I really wanted to annoy my bees, I would identify the groomers. The ones that, because it's like a job, it, it should almost be listed in the jobs that these bees do. Right up there with wax making, defending the hive, undertaker bees, and everything else. 
grooming bees, those same workers go from grooming one bee to another, to another, to another. They're like uh, someone's head that looked like a beauty salon, like they're doing their hair and everything else uh, because they're very thorough. Now, if I collected a bunch of those and put them in a small observation hive and then found bees that in fact had varroa destructor mites on their abdomens, and then I put those in that observation hive, we would see how quickly they detect the presence of those varroa, go after those workers that have the varroa mites on their abdomens, and then how quickly they dislodge and remove those and they drop through that IPM screen. IPM stands for Integrated uh, Pest Management. And so the screens, the varroa mites would fall through. And that's where we find them with their little feet chewed off, for example, that was mentioned earlier. So once in a while, a bee does come in with a varroa mite. I'm just not there to see it. And the mite counts in those hives are so tiny. We're talking 1% or less. So... Very interesting stuff. Uh, as far as the green tinted thorax, sometimes people do ask me about thorax. Uh, one had an hourglass white uh, coating on there and they thought that it was some kind of mold or something else. But if you look at the bees when they're trying to groom themselves, speaking about grooming, uh, the reason it has this hourglass shape is because they rake their limbs over their own thorax and they can't get 100% of the thorax cleaned off. So sometimes this is a very dense pollen that's sticking to their hair. Uh, specifically green, I just don't know anything about. Maybe a viewer has seen that, a green tinted thorax. Uh, and I'm not saying that, that it is pollen or that's stuck on the hairs because if we're saying the thorax itself, um, I don't know. I don't know of any line of bees that has that physical coloration assigned to it. But uh, maybe somebody else might know, um, this is in St. Petersburg, Florida, Florida area. So somebody else down there, has seen this green tint on their bees and has an answer for why they're there, why that color is on them. Maybe they'll share it down in the comment section below. The next question comes from Trish Westberg. This is question number 10. Oh my gosh, I have a lot of questions today, you guys. So, question number 10. I took a snapshot of the drawing of your current setup of, uh, and have a couple of questions. How does your current setup work? And the current setup snapshot was the drawing that I did that showed my long Langstroth hive, not long Langstroth, standard Langstroth hive configuration, uh, which is, I'll just describe it really quick, solid bottom board, slatted rack, which is a two inch spacer, deep brood box, medium super, minimum to get them through winter. So that gets, that's the honey super that stays. That is the same configuration if I'm doing a flow hive. Bottom board, Slatter rack on some. I don't put slatter racks on all the flow hives because they don't, they're a different dimension. Outside dimension is off by a quarter inch. So then I have a video coming up where I've modified a flow hive with their equipment to show you my optimum winter setup for the flow hive coming up. I'm just behind. So, but the configuration is the same. And I put an insulated inner cover over that. And then once they've built up those first two boxes and they're full of honey and everything else, I put the flow super on there. Also, remember, I don't use the queen excluder. Um, and then when I put on the flow super, the insulated inner cover goes directly on top of that, and uh, the feeder shim goes above that. Even though we're not actively going to feed anything, when you've got a honey super on, it just keeps all your equipment together. So at the end of the year, when you pull your super off, just like any other honey super, when you pull the flow super off or your surplus honey, you 
drop down that insulated inner cover, the feeder shim over that, and the configuration is exactly the same. So there's no real difference. Uh, flow highs, if you notice, they've got those gabled roofs. I have not been using those because I wanted an insulated roof and there was no room in there to put insulation and be able to feed your bees. So in the new uh, configuration that I have, we can insulate that and you can still use that gabled roof if you want it. But I've been using B-Max insulated outer covers for that. A standard Langstroth 10 B-Max, you can put that on an 8-frame or a 10-frame. Who cares if it's a 10-frame cover on an 8-frame box? You just get a bigger overhang and more protection. And then they're strapped down with shipping straps or they have uh, bricks holding them down. So that's the other thing you can't, uh, with the gabled roof on the flow hive, you're not going to be putting bricks on top of that to keep that roof on. They have, uh, depending on which one you have, they've got the brass screws that hold on to the feeder shim and everything. That feeder shim then would have to be bonded to a lower box to make it really hold on. So I'm going to be doing that, but it's exactly the same, really. It just happens to be, instead of a regular super, it's a flow super. Question number 11 comes from Thomas Lamy. So I've been keeping honeybees for approximately five years. I had a colony from 2018 to 2020, two colonies in 2021, and now I have six with two nukes. I'm planning my first ever IPM for this fall using oxalic acid with Laura B's vaporizer. So IPM stands for integrated pest management. So when we say, uh, my first ever IPM for this fall using oxalic acid with Laura B's vaporizer. Uh, that's a treatment. Integrated pest management would be a configuration of the hive that stays the same. Uh, so it would be an, um, an entrance reducer, maybe, that's got a, a robbing guard on it or a robbing screen. Uh, maybe you've got a screen bottom board with a tray underneath of it so that mice and things like that fall through. That's integrated pest management. Uh, so maybe you've got some traps in areas where small high beetles and things like that would get stuck. That's integrated pest management. The oxalic acid vaporization is a treatment. So just, just for general information for others that are listening. Uh, since 2018, I've not had any issues with disease. I have seen little evidence of dead varroa on my insert board over the years. So my IPM is Darwinian. Because I know they do exist to some point, I'm not going to do a mite count. I live in Dover, New Hampshire, and it looks like I'm about 100 miles north of you as a crow flies. I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on when a colony has a natural brood break in the fall, or maybe I should induce one. Okay, so um, again, a brood break, that's another uh, method of pest management. Because when there's a break in the brood, the varrodestructor mites lose all of that time for reproduction in the cells of uh, pupating bees. So uh, we're too late, in my opinion, for an artificial brood break. And if you want to know what the method is for an artificial brood break, on the website, thewaytobee.org, uh, we have queen caging. So I have the whole schedule there for you, but we're past that time here. So, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't treat for mites. It just means that a brood break probably wouldn't be a good idea this late in the year because now we've lost all of that production for at least 14 days. Uh, you're losing over a thousand new bees a day for every day that your queen is out of egg laying production 
contributing to the hive. So uh, I wouldn't recommend that this uh, far along in the year. And hopefully, based on this, it sounds like the varrodestructor mite levels would be low. You could do oxalic acid vaporization treatments because they are approved in most states. Some states have not yet approved oxalic acid vaporization. My state allows it, and you can use it when you have honey supers on. So it won't disrupt you. You won't have to wait, and you don't necessarily have to do a brood break. What you'll have to do then is a cycle of treatments. So uh, multiple treatments with your oxalic acid vaporization. And until you get and validate the mite counts, so you'll note the mite drop, number of mites that die when you do the treatment and they're in your tray or your bottom board. And of course, after your final treatment, you also should see a real big decline in the number of mites that drop off. And you should do a mite count. So because we're using this vaporizer, this uh, one from Laura Bees, Laura Bees, uh, when you do that, it goes through, you know, you don't take apart your hives. So you're not really interrupting the bees that much. And uh, it doesn't even bother the bees that much on the inside. They go about their normal tasks after the initial blast of the oxalic acid vaporization goes in there, the oxalic sublimates and goes in. Um, they go right back to their normal routine, even while the space is full of that vapor. And uh, the reason I know that is because we watch them do that when we have a observation hive. In the past, I published a video about that that shows you exactly what the bees' reaction is to it. So you can take comfort in knowing they're not under profound distress while you're providing that treatment. Let me tell you what is under distress. Those uh, Varroa destructor mites. They don't like it one bit because it coats everything in there. So anyway, the next time uh, that you have a natural brood break for us here is at uh, the end of November, uh, beginning of December. So often you can get such a powerful result from a single oxalic acid vaporization treatment at the end of November that your mite numbers will stay low right through spring. And you'll be amazed often at how few mites you have coming into April and May when you're able to get into your hives and do your first mite samplings. Uh, because it's just, it's astonishing. You can knock out up to 96% of phoretic mites when um, your brood is uh, greatly reduced or non-existent. This is also why people start to panic near the end of the year. Uh, when your, your colonies go into lower production, I'm sure these questions are going to come up later on because uh, it's a little early to be talking about it, but you have all these mites that have been reproducing and they're assuming if you're not treating, they're in your hive. And as the numbers of the bees dwindle going into fall and early winter, that means that often mite counts jump. You get these big numbers. And the reason is you have the same number of Varroa destructor mites in the hive. They're running out of hosts. Therefore, more Varroa destructor mites per host bee. And that's why your counts rocket because you're sampling uh, bees that you have a reduced number. And so you might get 10 or 20 mites where you otherwise would have gotten four or five. But that's why. It seems like there's more mites, but what there really is is fewer bees and then the mites are on them. So question number 12, Brian, 
Schlatman, that's the YouTube channel name. Okay, from Kingdom City, Missouri, close to Columbia. I'm pretty devout follower of Dr. Leo and yours. I have five Lands hives and I run a cattle ranch. So I raise the bees for honey and propagation of clover, wildflowers, and we have about 150 acres here at the time. I have seven active hives in those lands. Interested in seeing how you prepare your lands for winter and how much honey you leave the bees for winter and possibly how you distribute it in the hive. If you ever get back to Missouri, look me up. Okay, thanks for that invitation. I'm originally from Missouri. A lot of people don't know that. Um, so anyway, the person that you should talk to about the lands hive and winterization is going to be Dr. Leo. Uh, my practices are different from his. If you notice that the way the hives come, uh, the lands hive in particular, there's venting even through the cover of the lands hive. So mine, uh, in fact, the new one, the last one I sprayed expansion foam in the cover and I closed off the vents on the ends. This time I put two inch rigid insulation board in the cover. And I also did expansion form foam around the edges of that because I want that top to be solid insulation. I want uh, as much insulation through the top as I can. I'm gonna use the single entrance. Now, because there are metal discs on the other two entrances, they're not gonna be insulated at those, those additional entrances. And the good news is that those are low on the sides and these hives are insulated in the sidewalls with uh, lamb's wool, sheep's wool. And so uh, there's no venting through the top on mine. Now, the other thing is preparation for winter. That's it, just to look to see. I have to divide them, they're, they're too populated. So I have too many bees in there. All the frames are used. I don't wanna lose them to a late season swarm. That's why I had to buy a second lay-ins hive and I'm going to uh, split the colony. And right now they're gonna to have to make a new queen. So, which is okay with me because the population is too high. So I know that they will then be building up their population again about mid or the third week of September. And for this area, that's enough for them to still get resources. And uh, because we have a follower board, remember I can condense that colony so it can actually even be the size of a nucleus hive if I want it to be. Now the question is, how do they use their resources in winter? Dr. Leo, again, is the best person to answer that. And so what I'm doing is recycling to you basically what he says. We want, and this ties in with my desire to have a single entrance, where's the brood? down low on the frame, near the entrance, spread across three or four frames. That's perfection in my mind. And then I go to inspect and where's the brood? Full height of the frames. So uh, doesn't, they, they don't do it the same way that they did in other hives. So maybe there's too much ventilation in there. I don't know, maybe the ventilation needs to be even reduced below that, that hole that they have. Uh, so I don't have many years of experience with the Layens hive. But uh, I want my brood to be low on the frame because Dr. Leo says that your brood will be low on the frame and that your honey will be above it and that your bees will move vertically. And we know that our bees do that. They do that in the Langstroth hive. So as we get to winter time, the cluster, that winter cluster and the mantle of older bees forming the crust of that they start migrating up and uh, the quote was a millimeter per day. They move up over the honey super and uh, they'll be consuming the honey that's in there. 
So in theory, that's what they're supposed to do. So we have these lay-ins frames and uh, the bees are supposed to migrate up. Well, they can't because the way mine is, it's full of bees. So they're already at the top, they're already at the bottom, they're covering the whole frame. Uh, they're going to have to move laterally. So that's gonna be the big test this year. Will those bees glue themselves to the brood and those frames and will they just starve? Or will they migrate laterally through the frames to where the honey is stored? Now, sure, I can help them out. I can take, as I do preparations for winter time, I can take the honey that's at the other end of the hive and I can pull one frame and I can make that the first frame, which right now is brood. So I can make that a honey frame. Then I can put the three or four frames of brood and I can put another honey frame right next to that. I don't want to checkerboard them and put a bunch of honey like brood, honey frame, brood, honey frame, because I want the brood to be able to stay warm and uh, it's better if they have brood on all sides. And then we push the honey frames right up next to them and hope that they use it. So we'll see. The good news is the hive's insulated, top and sides and bottom with a single entrance, which should result in a warmer climate inside the hive, especially in that heat envelope up there if I've weather stripped everything right. And uh, then they should be warm enough on the warm days in wintertime to migrate through the honey. Guess what locks them in place? New brood. When do they start doing that? End of December, beginning of January, they'll have some brood there. And when they do that, they'll either divide forces or we need those warm-up days. And when we get those weird winter warm-up days, which last winter we had pretty consistent cold weather, so they didn't have a lot of opportunity for that. There weren't even a lot of cleansing flight days, but if we get those warm-ups where it hits the 60s or something just for a couple days, that will release a lot of the bees that are composing that cluster. They'll break cluster and they'll access the honey and hopefully migrate some of those resources closer to where their brood is gonna be locked in. This is just theory in my head and I have to be honest and say, I've not had a horizontal hive colony make it through one of my winters yet but I've never gone into winter with hive strength as big and powerful as these are. So this is the year we'll see what we end up with. And, uh, but there again, Dr. Leo, I don't know how you talk to him. Uh, if you can email him or something, uh, or if he's already covered this maybe somewhere, uh, he's going to recommend books to you. Uh, you know, the Layens Hive, Horizontal Hive Handbook, and things like that. Beekeeping with a Smile. These are all books by uh, that were edited by Dr. Leo and translated uh, into English. So they cover things like that, but as I described, they're not positioned on the frames where they could just move vertically. They are going to have to move horizontally because the whole frame is brute. Question number 13, Lee Shreve. Fred, I need your advice. I caught a swarm of my own bees. I've put them in the box twice with honey and sugar water. They came back out and sit on the side or underneath. Some go in, but most just stay outside. Why would that be? And this is great because 
uh, at a colony bee it's doing exactly the same thing. It happens, a little frustrating. And this is what I've noticed. You get a cluster of bees from a bivouac location. Now, I don't know if this is the case because Lee did not tell me the history of the swarm that was collected. But here's what I noticed. The longer that that swarm is in that intermediate location and they don't find a home to move into, they cluster really tight. Uh, we were in a dearth period, so their resources are slim. So I collected a swarm like that. I put them in a nucleus hive and I videoed it. And what did they do? They exited the nucleus hive and collected on the face of it. Now you would think they're collected on the face. Well, they're still making up their mind. They're probably gonna go somewhere else, but they didn't. They stayed on the outside of the hive. Now that hive did not have drawn comb from other hives. It did not smell like a box that previously had been occupied. Now, I could have helped that by putting in little bits and pieces of propolis and beeswax from other hives and spread it through the bottom. That would make them think, yeah, this is a bee cavity and we should move in here. Uh, so they collected on the outside, but then I thought, hmm, what if they don't even have a queen? I mean, what's going on? Uh, I couldn't find evidence of a queen. And then I thought, so let's test it. So what I did, and uh, I don't know, I would have already responded, I think, to Lee, uh, because I didn't want him to wait till Friday to hear my answer. But I used uh, the queen mandibular pheromone, the temp queen. And I had a really old, worn out one. Like the, the pheromone has to be almost like non-detectable. So in this video that I'm going to share with everybody, um, I put the temp queen inside the hive. This is a double nuke. So it's five deep frames, five deep frames. So the equivalent of putting them all into a 10 frame single deep, but it's a vertical configuration. And I put the noodle in between two frames up in the bag inside the hive to see if I could convince them that there's a pheromone in there that says that there's a queen present and that they should go in and meet her. And then over a period of a couple of hours, that's what they did. So they're in there. The question is, is there a queen at all? There should be. It's a sizable swarm. So I don't know any information uh, from Lee here. What's inside the box already? Uh, you put uh, honey and sugar water and they came back out. So it sounds like there was a frame of honey and they still rejected it. So why are they on the outside? And if the queen's not there, why aren't they just going back to wherever they came from originally? So I don't know what's binding them together unless you pick through the whole thing and make sure that they do or do not have a queen. But the QMP I put in there, they're in there. So now I can't just leave them with a synthetic queen if they don't build infrastructure, uh, if they don't start to have eggs in there, then I know that I have a queenless swarm or an unmated queen swarm. And then I can boost them so I can get my answer this way. Brood will bring them in. So I can go to one of those resource hides that I spoke about earlier. I can get a frame that has eggs, open larvae, bee bread, and everything on one frame and I can put that single frame in there. One of two things is going to happen. And remember, I have to remove that QMP lure at the same time. 
because if that's what they think is the queen and if that's the binder and why they're in there, that has to go away. Now that will divert their attention to the frame of brood that I put in there with the eggs and with the resources in that single deep frame. And what's going to happen is if they don't have a queen, they're going to take eggs that are in there and they're going to create queen cells. Uh, and I want to move it with nurse bees too. I don't just take the frames and shake bees off. I want to bring nurse bees with it. Do not bring the queen from your nucleus hive, but put that all in there and I'll have my answer in a short amount of time. They'll either build queen cells or a week later when I check it out, I'm going to see new eggs in there and they'll know they have a queen. They're set. Maybe she just wasn't mated before. But the QMP, the queen mandibular pheromone, synthetic pheromone, is how I got them to move inside instead of clustering outside and being resistant to the hive that I have generously provided them to occupy. So we'll see how that goes. There will be a video. I'm going to talk about all that, and I'm going to show you how it worked. And the last question of the day. This is the fluff section. Somebody named the hive and the honeybee, frequent viewer, frequent commenter. Mr. Dunn, there's a new beekeep channel, Fit Be Fit. Okay, so I think it is Be Fit Beekeeping. And it says that she's awesome. Need to interview her ASAP or a shout out. Okay, so not an interview, but this makes my list as somebody that I would do a shout out for. This is a new beekeeper channel. Uh, this is an individual that started the channel and is an athlete. And so tied in fitness to beekeeping somehow, but I watched one of the videos partway through and the information that she's putting out is really good. So this makes um, a person that we could do a shout out for. So I'll put a link down in the video description. I would appreciate it if you, the viewers, would go and check out this channel, tell them that I sent you, give them encouragement, a couple thousand subscribers, so not a big channel. Uh, but the information that she's putting out is really good. And she does it at a rapid pace. And so if you don't like the way I talk super slow and you want somebody that really rapid fires you through some stuff, it looks like that's a, um, a channel that's going to do really well. So the other thing is, what do I have here? Uh, we're going to close out today with a, a longer version of what's blooming in my area and the bees that are on it. Another thing that I want you to notice is when you saw the opening segment, you might notice that some of the bees that are on those flowers look a little different. And that's because those are native bees. Those aren't honeybees. And in fact, we get to one uh, sunflower. I'll show you all of those again so you can check them out. But you'll see one sunflower has the native bees, which the pollen runs the full length of their hind legs. And then on the same flower is a honeybee. So you can see exactly what they're like. So some people tend to think that the honeybees push out other pollinators. The other pollinators don't have a chance with the honeybees around, but the honeybees actually yield ground to the native pollinators and they go to other things. But in this case, they were on sunflowers. And so it's very interesting to see those. And I already did the shout out to the new channel and be ready to super your bees. If you're in the Northeast, we're at the beginning of a big nectar flow here. And uh, don't be caught off guard losing your bees and uh, having swarms at the end of the year to deal with. So this is a time to be checking them out. Do your quick inspections, get them expanded and make sure they have the room. Uh, what else? Do, 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 do. 
If you do splits now, you have a hard time. Don't forget, as we mentioned before, lots of water should be out for your bees. Don't try to mix everything together. Have uh, sea salts and Himalayan salts, things like that. The only reason I mentioned these two, they were the ones that my bees preferred. I did all the others, the Celtic sea salts. I did everything everybody asked me to test and the bees were clear. One of the cheapest ones, Morton's Natural Sea Salts. Uh, one teaspoon per quart of fresh water and it will give your bees uh, the minerals that they're running out of just like us when we're drinking a bunch of water and everything we need minerals and electrolytes and things like that to keep us healthy so i want to thank you for being here today i hope you learned something and i hope you enjoy watching the videos at the end of today's q a thanks for being here hope you have a fantastic weekend and keep up with your bees
Thank mm-hmm. you.